Amen. So I don't know how well acquainted all of you are with all of the new children's movies, but I've become quite well acquainted with many of them, one of which is Frozen. Right? It's pretty normative to walk around our house throughout the day and hear the song Let It Go sang on a regular basis, or Do You Want to Build a Snowman, or whatever it is. But as I was thinking about our passage this morning, we're going to hit the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3.16, and as I was thinking about that in the midst of the context around it, I was thinking, what's a good you know, illustration that kind of displays kind of the hint or the gist of what this this passage is trying to say. And so if you know anything about Frozen, even if you don't, let me explain a little bit of it to you. It's a story about two sisters, one of which has special powers, and and what ends up happening is the one with special powers ends up out out in the wilderness of the winter, out in the mountains by herself. Everybody thinks she's evil, she's too far gone, nobody can save her. Basically, they think they have to end up killing her in order to basically save their whole town from her, even though she's the new queen of the town. And then you have the other sister, who's kind of the more easygoing one, that kind of is gullible and falls for all the tricks, and she goes out to talk to her sister and gets struck by her sister's icy powers, frozen, hence the name, right? And she gets struck by the powers, right? And all of a sudden now, she's starting to die, So basically you have two situations, you have two sisters, both of which seem to be too far gone. You have a sister that they think is too evil because of the powers that she has, and then you have another sister that actually is dying, and the only way for her to be saved is by an act of true love. Now of course, knowing Disney movies, right, we think of Disney princesses, and we think an act of true love is that she has to get kissed by her prince. Right, And actually, that's what she thinks, and that's what she's kind of pursuing after throughout the movie. And really what ends up happening is the sister that's dying, at some point in the movie, towards the end of the movie, the climax of the movie, movie as her, her sister is about to get killed, steps in front of her to save her, and then freezes. Right, Like, that's what's happening to her. That's how she's going to die. She's going to freeze because she's been struck by these... She steps in front of her sister and freezes, but then all of a sudden starts to thaw out because she performed the act of true love by taking the place of the penalty her sister was about to pay. And now that's a long story, right? That's a long illustration of Frozen, but we can see even glimpses of our redemption story from the Bible, even in a children's movie nowadays. An act of true love of someone willing to step in and substitute themselves in the place of the penalty of another. So that's going to be hinting towards what we're going to get at as we go throughout the next part of John chapter 3. Right? We started last week with Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus not really understanding things. He's a Pharisee. He doesn't quite understand all of this Stuff Jesus tells him he needs to be born again. He's still not fully getting it, even though he's one who, of the experts in the Old Testament. But now we see John 3 continue on, and now there's debate of what happens here. 
There's debate on whether Jesus is actually continuing to talk in verses 16 through 21 or whether Jesus stopped talking in verse 15 and John is actually, the author John is giving an explanation or some insight into Jesus here. And that's actually probably the better option. If you pay attention to what's being said here, there's certain things that get said about Jesus in 16 through 21 that Jesus never says about himself in any of the Gospels. So it's more likely that John, looking back now, has some understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus was saying, that he starts to kind of play it out, right? To flesh it out a little bit for us. So, we're going to start with two verses, the last two verses of last week, because it helps us get the flow here of what's going on. So, starting in John chapter 3, starting verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we're going to approach this morning a little more thematically than we normally do. So normally I would go through verse by verse and we kind of see how they all connect together, and we'll see how they all connect together, but we kind of see some themes run throughout multiple sets of verses here, so we're going to actually approach this morning with three different themes we're going to see in this passage. The first one is we see the theme of a condemned world. First, John makes it clear in this passage that the world he refers to stands condemned. Right? Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So until someone believes in the name of Jesus, they already stand condemned. Whoever doesn't believe is already condemned. Why? Because he hasn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. John is explaining to us here that this is the natural state of the world we live in. This is the world we're all born into. We are all born not believing in the name of Jesus. If you look just back to a couple chapters earlier in John chapter 1, verse 10, listen to what he says. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So it's abundantly clear here. John's telling us that the world Jesus enters into, though the world was made by Jesus, the world didn't know Jesus. And he's telling us here, until the moment comes where you're born again and you believe in Jesus, all of us stand condemned. All of us don't believe. Or if you look in 
Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gives us another description of what this looks like. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Just listen to this description of us before our salvation. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the description of us. We were dead, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that which is now working in disobedience, the passions of our flesh, by nature children of wrath. That's the description of everyone before believing in Jesus. Or going back to John chapter 3, right there in verse 16, what do we find out? That this world that already stands condemned, apart from Jesus, is set out to perish. Right? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. So believing in him is what makes you not perish, so that means when you don't believe in him, you're already set to perish. If God had not chosen to act in sending His Son, this is the fate of everyone in the world. If God never sent Jesus, everyone is set to perish. There's no chance of any possibility of anyone ever entering eternal life unless God acts. And this is an eternal perishing, right? John speaks of this in future terms. Whoever would believe should not perish, right? That was a perishing that is going to happen in the future. It's an eternal perishing. So while one experiences the fallenness of the world around us now because of the fall of Adam and Eve, there's also a future reality of perishing that goes far beyond any fallenness that we see in our present world. So this is the state of the world. It stands condemned. So it's a world that needs saved. Right? It's a world that's condemned now and it's set for eternal separation from God. So this means the world needs to be saved. It's a dire situation where there's no help in and of ourselves. So there's two realities that are true here. Two things that need to happen. One, we need someone to act that's not condemned. Because we're all condemned before God sends Jesus, right? We're all condemned. We have no hope of anything but perishing. We need someone who's not condemned to act. And the second thing we need is we need them to act in such a way that it offers us hope of a salvation from being condemned. So there's two things that have to happen. Somebody who's not condemned has to act, which the only one who stands not condemned is God, by the way. And he has to act in such a way that he can save us from our condemnation. Right? Notice right there, we included verses verses 14 and 15 today. It's just the same thing. Look at Israel in the wilderness, right? And they're getting bit by these serpents. What's their hope to be saved from the serpents? God has to act. God has to do something. 
And he does, right? He gives them the bronze serpent to lift up that anyone who looks at it might be saved. That's what God has to do for us. For the world in John's day, for the world in our day, what, he, what God has to do is he has to do something. He has to act in such a way that it gives us salvation. And that's exactly what God does with Jesus. Look at verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Of course not, the world's already condemned. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Instead, he sent his son that the world might be saved through him. You notice the, the verb there, right? The verb saved is passive. It's not that you are saving yourself, it's that someone is saving you. It's that the world might be saved through Jesus. Jesus is the one doing the saving. God's the one doing the saving by sending his son. We're not saving ourselves. We're not the active participants in this. Though we do experience what it means to be saved, right? Though we experience what it means to place our our faith and trust in Jesus, it only happens because God first initiated the action by sending Jesus. And then John continues on to display to us, as if, as if maybe somebody didn't believe John. Maybe somebody said, well, where's your proof that this world stands condemned? What do you see going on in the world that, that proves your point here? So John goes on to say how this condemnation displays itself. He says there's an evil around us, an evil in this world that loves the darkness. Verse 19. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So he says, people love the darkness rather than the light. The light has come and started to shine, but people have started to push back on it and try to hide from it. And why do people love the darkness? Because the works that they're doing are evil. John's proving his case here, right? A world condemned loves the darkness. If the world didn't already stand condemned, it would have received the light with gladness. Jesus would have been received with open arms because Jesus is the light. And if the world wasn't condemned, it would receive the light. But instead, the light enters the world and the world loves the darkness, so it pushes back the light. It actually kills the light. And it's a world that hates the light because it hates the idea of being exposed. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. It makes sense. People living in evil, people living in darkness don't want their darkness to be found out. Right? So those living like this hate any hint of truth, any hint of light that starts to show up because it means that their darkness might start to get exposed. The apartment we lived in before we moved here, we had issues at times with roaches. 
Most of you have probably been there before. That's what I think of when I think of this passage. I would always only see the roaches when I would get up for a glass of water in the middle of the night, right? And like it was, our apartment was like pitch black in the kitchen, so I'd shine my flashlight on my phone in order to make my way there, and there you'd see one or two scurrying on the floor or whatever. But as soon as you flip the light on, what happens? They hide, right? Let's get back to the darkness. We hate the light. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want them to know we're here. It's the same thing in the condemned world. Sin hates light. It hates the truth. It hates the possibility of being exposed. Brothers and sisters, this condemned world John is talking about is our reality. First of all, it was your personal reality before you came to Christ. No matter how good of a kid you were, no matter how much you went to church, until the day you were born again, you did everything you could to prevent exposure. You wanted everything you could do to hide in the darkness whatever sin you loved. Think about children. I never had to teach my kids when something wrong was done for them to point at the other one. I didn't teach any of them to do that. But yet when something happens, thankfully we have, I think we have a, Sadie's the only one who really understands that concept yet. But thankfully we have a daughter who I think God's already starting to work in her heart because she actually will fess up sometimes. And honestly, like, apologize for it without any initiation of apology. But there's also plenty of times where, Albert, I didn't teach her that. I didn't have to. The darkness that she loves, the condemnation she already lives in, tells her, hide from exposure. Or if you have a child that waits to do something until the room is empty. Ever have that happen? Where all of a sudden it's only when your back is turned that there seem to be ten times more fights or disagreements or something gets broken. This is the natural state of every single one of us. We love the darkness. And we stood condemned, facing nothing but eternal punishment, perishing. And... Even if you have trusted in Christ, this is still the reality of the world you live in. Until Jesus comes back, this is how our world will continue to operate. So it should give us an understanding here of what we see going on even in ourselves and in the world around us. This is why people who even call themselves Christians still sometimes delete their search history. Or hide certain apps or messages on their phones. Or act different in public than they do in their own house. Or this is why, when we look at the world around us, that when you speak biblical truth in some, some parts of our world today, some parts of America today, it's called hate speech. Or when you try to tell about or speak about how God views human life, you're now being called as one who's infringing upon the rights of others. 
You need to understand this. Evil will be called good, and good will be called evil. It fits perfectly in our condemned world because it hates the light. And let me just remind you, no other worldview explains this. If you go to other religions or you go to atheism, you go to these other worldviews, nobody explains the morality of good and evil like the Bible does. And nobody explains especially the love for evil. Right? An atheist cannot explain how we can come up with the ideas of what's good and what's evil. If morality has simply evolved over time, then that means what you call good, I could call evil, and what you call evil, I could call good, and that's fair game for all of us. Because there's no standard to start at. It's nothing but survival of the fittest. So all the, the only thing that's good is the best move on. So that means there's a whole lot of things that could be called evil that our world is still not calling evil. But then you go to other worldviews, other ones that even have a a starting point of moral good and moral evil. There's still no explanation of why do people love the darkness. All these other religions want to say, well, your religion gets you there just as much as my religion gets me there. But, But then why do people love the way of not getting there. Why do people love their sin? There's, there's no description of that because they, every other religion doesn't view the world as one that already stands condemned. It's simple, you start out neutral. And if you're good enough, you make it. If you're bad enough, you, you don't. We don't start neutral, and the Bible's the only place that tells us that. It says you start out condemned. You're already in the negative. So it should give you an understanding of what you see in yourself, what you see in the world around you, but it also should give you a love for a world that needs saved. As we see what God does for this world, we need to see the world in the same way that God does. Because the reality is, you would have never come to know Jesus if someone hadn't loved you first. You cannot expect this world to be saved without Christians who are imitating the God who loves this world. So this is where we stand. We have a condemned world that needs to be saved. We need someone to act. Who's going to act? And how's he going to do it? Which leads us to the second theme. God's love that saves. As we move to John's description of what God does in order to save this world, it's important for us to also notice why God decides to do this. Right? He saw that the world is condemned, and there's nothing in the world, there's nobody in the world that could coax God into acting. Right? No matter how good you or I try to be, we can't coax God and say, are we good enough yet that you could send someone for us? You, you stand condemned, point blank. But we see in verse 16 what God chooses to do. God chooses to love the unlovable. For God so loved the world. Or God in this way loved the world. Sometimes we get confused by the word so there. We think that God's love for the world was so great and so magnificent that he couldn't help himself but act. But it's not. The word so is actually the same word for so that we see 
in verse 14 and 15. 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Right? It's, it's saying, in this way, the Son of Man must also be lifted up. So then we see the exact same word used in verse 16. For God so, for God in this way, loved the world. God displays his love for the world. God chooses to love the world. God, God's affections for the world aren't so great that he can't help himself. That we just, he, We're just so wonderful that he just has to love us. But it's the fact that God chose to love that which was deemed unlovable. Remember, this is a world that's condemned, that's evil, that loves the darkness. Yet God chooses to love it. Simply because he chooses to do so. Not because there was a glimpse of hope within us. Look real quick at Romans chapter 5. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's clear here. One of us would rarely even offer our own lives for a righteous person. Right? As I said, we rarely want to give up our own lives even for someone that's good. Never would we give it up for that which is evil, that which stands condemned. But yet while you and I were still sinners, while we were already condemned, Christ died for us. God chooses to love that which is unlovable. That's the world's only hope. Everything rests on that choice that God makes. And God displays this love, displays this choice to love by giving his only son. The rest of verse 16. For God in this way, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God doesn't just say he loves, God actually displays his love by giving his only son. Can you imagine? Put yourself in God's shoes for a moment. A world that stands condemned. And your son, only one that you love deeply. And you're going to send him, give him to that condemned world. Because you're choosing to love that world. And what does the world do? You in love send him to the world, and the world in hate kills him. God's love for the unlovable is so great and beyond comprehension. It's something that we would never choose to do. We would never choose to take someone that we love so deeply and give it for a person that stands condemned. But it's because God is working towards something that we would have never sought ourselves as we stood condemned. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
God's accomplishing a greater purpose here that we can't see, that we would have never thought of to do. We would have never thought the only way to be saved is that the perfect God sends His perfect Son to die in our place. But that's exactly what He does. God sends His Son not to speak condemnation to those who are already condemned, but to live and die in such a way that those who are condemned can be saved. And the world doesn't get it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells us that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. No matter how smart you are, no matter how much you know about God, no matter how much you know about the Bible, nobody would have ever thought that this was the way to get out of our condemnation. This is a salvation that only God could do. Just look at the religious leaders of Jesus' day, right? Those who were the experts in the Old Testament. They were the ones that killed Jesus. So it had to be God. And it was. He gives his only son that we might be saved. How? That's why we include verses in 14 and 15 today. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We know that this phrase is used throughout the Gospel of John to talk about Jesus' death. And that's exactly what John and Jesus are pointing towards here, is Jesus' own death and resurrection. That is the only way of salvation. And God did it for a condemned world. God has a whole world full of people who hate him, who stand in condemnation, who he would have been perfectly right to send into eternal punishment forever. He would have been perfectly right to do all of that. And yet he sends his son. His son to live a perfect life that we could never do. But then his son to be lifted up on a cross. And God crushes his own son. He turns his face away so much that Jesus, as he hangs on the cross, asks his own father why he's forsaken him. God lays the sins of the condemned world on him so that he can take the love that he has for the son and give it to those who stood condemned. He takes the righteousness of the son And gives it to those who once did evil. But it's not just everyone in the world. We know the clarifier here is that all who believe. But regardless, it's all people who were once condemned. So that's why when Jesus hangs on the cross, he says, it is finished. The salvation for a condemned world has been accomplished. I love my family, and there's a lot of decisions I've made in life for their sake, to try to do what's best for them. 
we've moved out we moved down to Louisville a few years ago because we were in a in, in a position in in a church and around a group of people that we didn't think were necessarily very helpful or beneficial or healthy for our our family to be raised in so we made the decision to move down to Louisville I, I went into seminary Lydia started to take some classes there we spent a couple years there Albert was born we found out that Asher was on his way and we had to make a decision of what's best for our family again because I love them and we thought the best thing for our family was not to be cooped up in a two-bedroom apartment which was the only thing we could afford we decided the best thing was not for if possible not for me to just be working some random job in order just to barely make it by. And then God ultimately led us here. I make decisions because I love my family. If I, a sinner, saved by purely grace, sacrifice out of love for those who do good back to me, right? That's not even close to what God does here. But I get a glimpse of it. But take the other side of it. Have you ever seen one of those videos, or maybe you've seen it in real life, of a situation of someone who's had a loved one murdered, and they go to the trial and they speak forgiveness to the one who killed them? Now, that's a person who's loving someone who's condemned, right? Someone who's doing evil things, but they didn't choose to give up their loved one. So, though that's a glimpse of the similar love that God has, it's not the same thing. We put these things together. We have a world that stands condemned. And God says, I'm willing to give my own son so that he can be crushed, killed, take on me forsaking him so that those who stand condemned might be saved. How much deeper and more glorious is God's love than anything that we could ever do? So brothers and sisters, there's two truths I want you to hear in this. The first one, though simple it may sound, is God loves you. And I'm not saying this as some flippant phrase. I'm not, I'm not doing this as a cheapened version of, well, God loves everybody. And it, God, knowing your evil heart, your hostile mind, your love for everything in this world except him. He chose to love you. And he gave his own son to be slaughtered for you. A son that, as he hangs on the cross, receives your punishment for your sin, all with the hope that you might be reconciled back to God. So rest in that this morning. Take rest in the truth that God's love, back then and even today, has never been dependent on your goodness. He loved you even when you stood condemned. But the second truth I want you to hear this morning is that this same love should be imitated to the rest of the world that still stands condemned. God chooses to love the unlovable. So should you and I. Jesus says to do for the least of these, right? 
He says to do, the, do things for the least of these. He, sa- he says go visit those who are in prison, to give a drink to those who are thirsty, to give food to those who are hungry. He says to take care of the widow and the orphan. He, Jesus hung around with the tax collectors and the lepers and the outcasts of the world. How are you displaying God's love that saves to the world that is deemed unlovable? And we see here as God displays his love, people are then drawn in to believe in him. Our last theme here, real quick, is we see a faith that gives life. John made it clear in last week's passage and this week's passage that you believe and you are given eternal life. And it makes sense, flowing from last week, right? Where we talked about you need to be born again. So if you're born again, if you're born of the Spirit, if you're born into the kingdom of God, then you have a new way of life before you. True belief has you enter into new life. But I want to hit a couple key elements of this belief, this faith that gives life. First of all, it's faith in the one and only Son. Verse 16. Whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's, it's not just some random faith. It's not just anybody who has faith in something has eternal life. There's an object to the faith, or rather here, it's a person that our faith is in. Because it's our faith that unites us to that person. It's our faith that unites us to Christ. Right? There's all over the New Testament, there's this phrase of, are you in Christ? Are you in Him? Because it's only in our union with Him that we see what C.S. Lewis calls as the great exchange. It's only when you're united with Him that God can give everything to you that belongs to Jesus. And everything that belongs to you, He lays on Jesus. That exchange only happens if you're united to Christ by having faith only in Him. There was a missionary who was trying to translate the Bible to a group of people. They had, didn't have the word for faith. How do you translate the word for faith if you don't have a, a word for faith? How do you write that down? What do you do? And so he was out hunting one day with this group of tribal men. And they got done hunting. And the guy came back and he sat down in a chair and he said, it's so nice to just sit down and rest. And that's the phrase that this missionary took for faith. It's so nice to sit down and rest in Christ. That's what it means to have faith. That there's not this effort on you, that there's not this idea that if I'm just good enough, but this idea that I fully am dependent and resting on Him. Now that doesn't mean that your life doesn't change, it doesn't mean that you don't do anything, but it means that your salvation is fully dependent on resting on him. And we see that faith in the one and only Son, which then leads us to be saved through him. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's only by faith in Christ that one is united to him, and only by union with him that we share in his death and resurrection. That's what gives us eternal life, is we unite ourselves to him and we share in his death, and thus we share in eternal life because we share in the resurrection. Only faith in Christ offers salvation, saved through his death, because we share in his death. So we also share 
in the new life. And last, we see here that this is a faith that is wrought by God. We know from the book of James that faith and works are intricately connected together. Faith without works is dead. So when we go into verse 21, we see the importance of this. Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now we have a group of people that love the light, a group of people that want to come to the light. Right? They don't hate it like those who love the darkness, but instead they want to come to it because they're doing what is true. They're living a life that is pleasing to God. But why do they love the light? It's important here. It's not because they're so great now that they're in the light. It's not because in and of themselves they just randomly decide to do all these good things now. But the light exposes, and it exposes their works, And what does it say about their works in verse 21? Their works have been carried out in God. So John has made it clear up until this point that you must be born of God. You must be born of the Spirit. God does those things, right? God is the one who borns you again, if you want to say it that way. Here, those who leave the darkness for the light do so to display that God is carrying out his works in them. They do it so God might receive the glory, not themselves. Their faith and their works have been carried out by God, by his power, by his grace, so that he gets glory. One question I have to deal with all the time in seminary is plagiarism. Right? So, It's a big thing nowadays. They have all sorts of programs that can see if three words match another three words from a paper or whatever it is. But the question that I wrestle with is, you know, I do all sorts of reading for all sorts of papers and things like that. When do the ideas that I read become my own? If I'm five years down the road and I don't remember what book I read it out of, but I know I read it from a book somewhere, is it no longer my own idea if it's five years later and I don't remember where I got it from, but I know I believe it to be true? Where do you draw the line of what's plagiarism and what's not? That's a question that we have to wrestle with. When in doubt, just try to find the book, right? That's a question you never ask with Jesus. You can never take credit. You should never have to worry about plagiarism. As believers, it's all because God is carrying out your faith and your works. It always belongs to him. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you, taking that missionary's phrase, what are you resting in when it comes to your life? What allows you to take a breath? Is it when you think you have the right political leader? Is it when you think you've saved up enough money? Is it when you've met a goal that you determined to be success? Is it when you get a certain promotion and get to a certain level? Is it when you've bought a certain, le- a certain house that costs so much money? Is it when you get this specific car that you've been trying to get? Is it when a certain person finally approves of you? What allows you rest? What allows you to take a breath? Because I offer you this morning that only faith 
only resting in God's decision to love. God's decision to send his son. God's decision to crush his son, to to have him die for you. That's our only hope. That's our only hope for our lives, all of us who once stood condemned. So I want to invite you this morning, those in here or those listening online who don't know Jesus, God already sent him. You already stood condemned. God's not waiting for you to be good enough before finally accepting your faith. Just trust and rest in Jesus today. And those of us who do know Jesus, rest in his love. Realize that you could never earn it. No matter how good you tried to be or will try to be, you can't earn his love. He decided it long before when you still stood condemned. But then let me offer to you that you display this love to the unlovable world around us. That as you give up yourself, just like God gave up his son, you give up yourself to follow Christ, that others around you who still stand condemned might see this and might also come to know this love. Let's pray together. Father, We thank you that you love us. That while we were yet sinners, condemned, loving the darkness, doing nothing but evil works, you sent your son. Not only did you give him to the world, but he was killed by the world. that those of us who would believe in him would share in his death and resurrection, that we might have new life. We thank you. We thank you for your love. Help us to rest in it. Help us to not think that any, any of these things in this world for a single moment could give us the hope and the satisfaction that you give us in Christ. May we be reminded of this as we go throughout the week that you loved the unlovable, which means you loved us. May we never lose sight of how condemned we really were, which makes your love for us and your grace poured out upon us that much more glorious. May we never take credit for it in and of ourselves. May we always, always point it back to your glory, that you're the one who works our faith and the one who draws out the works that we do in the light. May we live lives this week that display this love the world around us, that we might see those who still stand condemned, 
come to know you. Come to know your love. The love that you show far beyond, way before we could ever choose to love you back. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.